Welcome to Kashmir on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashmir Magazine. And tonight, I think we have a very interesting show for you. Uh, we're going back a little bit in time, or maybe it's for you uh, current, and maybe you never had a chance to uh, look into this topic. But we're going uh, back uh, to the copepods, and I'd like to share with you, uh, I mentioned last time, this new Sefer, which is all in English. Of course, a Hebrew word's thrown in, too. Uh, it's called Hilchus Kashrus Imre David. That's the Hebrew title. The English title is Halachas of Insects. So it's a very exciting uh, volume. Uh, if you ever hear, you'll, you'll see tonight, I think, a little bit about it. But it's an exciting volume. It's not just uh, a dry discussion of halacha. It's not just uh, it's not pictures of uh, insects. It's exciting reading, at least for people like me. <laughs> anyway, it's written by Rav David Cohn. This Rabbi David Cohn is in Chicago. He's in the Chicago Rabbinical Council. He had been working with the OU for many years, and he has a very exciting job. He has the OU. I don't know exactly what he does at the at the at the CRC in Chicago, but obviously they're using his brain. So I, I want to share with you a little bit what he, his job was at the OU. There, when he, uh, there were different rabbanim who are involved in the Indian of halacha. Uh, they usually ha- they had at that time Rabbi Belsky's Atzal, and and they have uh, Rabbi Herschel Schachter at the OU, and of course Rabbi Ganak is involved in this, this halachic decisions, and they have a few rabbanim in Eretz Israel, and I think there's one in Muncie that they consult, and they have their people that they go to, the go-to people for halacha, and how does the halacha get decided? It's obviously input from different people. And final decision is up to Rabbi Menachem Ganak, and uh, based upon whatever his system is, I don't know, and that then it becomes the halacha of the OU, and the and the OU writes it down as policy, and they discuss what the various opinions and why we're doing this and not that, and that's how it comes out in the OU, and whenever it's written down, that's where it stays forever. I mean, maybe something could be reviewed if it really needs to, but it's called basically called grandfathered in, and you can't touch, you don't touch it after that. So the the man who was involved in this whole process is Rabbi David Cohn. Rabbi David Cohn would meet with Rabbi Shachter and meet with Rabbi Belsky, meet with Rabbi Ganak, and they would uh, he would make the calls to Israel, the calls to Muncie, whoever came down, whatever meetings they had, he ran the whole thing. I mean, not the head of them. He was he was uh, following it up, but getting the information, and he would help to actually write down the actual words that go in, and the decision that was made was, uh, was something that he knew the insides of it. So the man learned the kashras and the halacha on the highest level. He had entree to people that you can't get five minutes with. He had them all the time, and he understood what they were saying, and he and and then he had to he had he had to understand it. That was that was that was a major part of it, because otherwise, how can he write about it? How can he put it down in the exact wording? Did you mean this? Did you mean that? Does it apply here? Does it apply there? So he's a, a, a crackerjack when it comes to the halachas of kashrus, and he's right now writing. A series of svarim called Halachilchas Kashrus Imrei David. So it's a, it's very exciting, just who the man is. 
Now, the topic about the uh, copepods, you know, it's, it goes back to 2004, believe it or not. It's uh, quite a few years ago. And uh, the history of it is itself very interesting. The, actually, I was involved indirectly with this, with this whole situation. What happened in, in 2004 was that, sub, actually it was 2003, I believe, I was teaching a group of mashkichim uh, in uh, wannabe mashkichim. They wanted to know the halachos and, and practical aspects of kashvas. So I, I had, for a few years, I ran um, a, a series of these training programs. I called it a mashkich training program. And uh, we would learn halachos, and then we'd do practical things. So one of the practical things was to learn how to check for toiloyim for, for insects. Um, this is the, this is many years ago. There was no positive. Uh, I don't believe it was out yet. In any event, uh, there was nothing uh, with bug training courses. It didn't exist. But I did know somebody who, for certain purposes, he had to uh, check a lot of a uh, lot, lot of large amount of in, of vegetables, and he get very good at it. And I said, "Well, come over, and we'll you'll show him how you do it, and we'll see the actual bugs, and we'll see you checking, we'll see cleaning it, whatever, whatever he was doing in those days. I don't know if he does it the same way now, but anyway, he did. So we went to his house, and we." examined a, a lot of things, broccoli, and we were finding bugs for sure. It was, it was great. The program was great. And then we, in, in the middle somewhere, he opened his refrigerator. He had some vegetables in there. And I see a bag of uh, gush katif, good old days, the old gush katif when we had the uh, Gaza, you know. So gush katif, uh, lettuce was in there or whatever. And I said, why don't you check that? You've got to check that. That's, you know, I mean, this is the best in the world. What are you, you telling me you've got to check that? I said, yeah, why not? He didn't take it seriously. But later on, during the time we were there, he said, okay, I'll check it. And he checked it, and he found nothing. So I went home. Everything was fine. 11, 11.30, he calls me up, and he says, uh, this, by the way, is somebody right here in Flatbush. And he calls me up, and he said, Rabbi Wickle, I want to come over. I found something. He said, I went ahead. This never happens. That I went ahead. I, I tried the Gush Katif again. I figure maybe another what, run the rinse. And then I found bugs. Can't believe it. I said, really? Yeah. He said, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're bugs. Said, come, come on over. So we, we, he came over to the house, my house, and we looked at these. And there's definitely bugs. No question about it. Definitely insects. And he I said, you know, you have a responsibility. You have to send a letter to Gush Katif and tell them that this is, that we found bugs in their lettuce. So he sends a letter to, he listened to me, he sent a letter to Eretz Israel. And of course they answered him, and they said, the bugs are in your water. <laughs> he, did, he, did, he didn't know what they're talking about. He forgot about the whole thing for a year. He forgot about it. This is like we're up to 2004 now. So he forgot about that. And then when, I assume it's 2004, I mean, I'm following the numbers I see in the book. It could be a different year. But it was 2004. So he goes ahead and he he's checking something or other, and he sees the same dull white 
gray insects in the water. And it was something completely different. It wasn't from Gush Katif. He says, that's the same ones. He said, they said it was in the water. Let me see. And he wrapped something around the faucet. Uh, I don't know, a stocking or something. I don't know where he wrapped it on the faucet. And he uh, put a rubber band on, and he checked what was the residue. He didn't have, no one in those days was using filters. I mean, you know, you could be people, some people want to use filters for other reasons, but we weren't using filters in those days. So he, he made this impromptu filter, and uh, sure enough, he found the bugs. So he said, this is very bad, and you know, what do you do? What should you do? So he made up, he, had, he went to Revival Cone. Revival Cone, one of the poiskim of our time, he he used to daven by Revival Cone. Revival Cone now lives in Lakewood. At that time, he lived in Flatbush. And he goes ahead and he, he asks Revival what to do. And Revival said, you got to go to the OU with this. This you got to go to the OU. We went to the OU. We told him about it. showed him whatever it is. And things were dragging along a couple of months. Nothing was happening. And he, he was getting very frustrated. And uh, so... I don't know if it was an intentional thing or it wasn't intentional. I never asked him. <laughs> but he invited down three or four people to his house. I was not one of them. And he showed them the bugs in the water straight out. You know, we put the little thing around the faucet, caught the caught the bugs, showed them the bugs, and they were flabbergasted. And he said that the next day, not a week later, the next day, all Flatbush knew about this from those four people. And at that time, it just took off. So that's the history of what happened with the COVID pods. And some great minds got involved. And Poiskimen, it was it was a great story. But here is, to appreciate of David Cohn, I'm talking about Rob David Cohn from, from Chicago now, and in, in his Sefer, Halachas of Insects, there's a beautiful piece, and I'm going to read it to you. Uh, and, and I think we'll be able to uh, do the whole thing, and maybe some more from this book also, and I, I think you'll find it fascinating. Okay, now, Cobapods in New York City water. Now, he calls this part one, so I don't know what part two is all about. If you want to see the halachos, you have to go to Shulchan Aruch and uh, Yeridea, and it's Pei Dalit. That's where all these halachos are. So he introduces the topic by telling you that in the old days, bugs in the water was a common problem. Oh, I'm sorry. I really should have given you the other introduction. Let me give you the real introduction. Uh, yeah, let me give... Oh, I already went here, so I'll tell you. I'll, I'll go back. Uh, the, the, the bugs in the water is an old, old problem, and it's mentioned in all the svarim, the old, early svarim. The dark chuva has a whole section here dealing with how they check the water and then getting the water, because they used to have to go out to the water, to the rivers, and to the to, to get actual water to drink. And they got to had to get from uh, from Boris, and they had to get, you know, the wells, and dig wells, and get, they, they were getting the water uh, directly from the source. So the problem became very crucial to them. In today's world, we're getting it through a, uh, it's coming to us through a piping system, and so, therefore, we're not we're not touching the actual source of the water. We don't 
go to the reservoir. We don't go to the lakes. We don't go to the rivers. We don't go to the wells. We don't do anything like that anymore. So us, we're getting all the water piped in. So the situation changed a lot. Let me go now and give you the background that I, I should have given you to begin with. And that is, what is the whole story of uh, insects that are in water, water-based insects? So it seems that there are different, according to the Torah and the Gemara, which was discussing it, Gemara and Chulin, uh, there, there seems to be different types of ins- different types of waters that the insects could be found in. So the the Gemara explains that those that are found in Yomim Venachalos, in the seas and the rivers, those are the ones that the Torah says specifically are usher. You find it in a sea or river. That includes any body of water that's got an inlet that we call noivim, uh, that it, it's got an inlet from some source into it, and water which is moisheich, which is in state of motion. So that's the you have to have a continuous source of an inlet of water at the Novea, and it has to have be in state of motion. These are the two features of these Yomim Venachalos, the seas and the rivers. But insects that we in trenches and channels, what the Gemara calls charitzin when eats it, trenches or channels, they're subject to a machlokas in the Gemara, whether they are like Yomim Venachalos or they're not. And among them, we've already shown him, it's a difficulty on understanding the Gemara, and that's what, why in Shulchan Aruch, this area is a little bit open. That's trenches or channels. Then there, is, then there are actually, there are insects that are born in uh, pits, the byros, and other bodies of water that are attached to the ground. Now, they're not novea. They're not getting an inlet. They're just sitting in the ground, but they're not, there's no flow into them. And there's no moisheich, there's no movement. It's just a pit in the ground. So that's a boyer. And those pits uh, are, are permitted, as, uh, the insects in, in them are permitted as long as they don't leave the boyer. As long as they stay there in the mokom uh, where, they were, where they were born, then they do not become osir. And leaving them means shoritz ala aretz. It means to go out onto something else. Jumping up in the air is nothing. So it has to actually be going on something that land, so and then go back in. But we never know. So that we were machmir on it, basically. But still in all, we have to understand the principle that some insects that are found in water would be permitted. But they have to be similar to these byros, which are pits in the ground. And then we have another one, which is a kalim, which are cisterns where they have uh, you know, a, a clay thing that's above the ground. It's not in the ground itself. So it's not noivea. It's not uh, no inlets. There's not moishek. It's not moving. There's, there's no, it's not even in the ground. This is a, st- a step removed. So they're not attached to the ground. And then evenly more, they're, they're not m- even less like the Yemen binachalos. And they're more likely to be permitted. And these two cases are discussed in the, in, in the beginning of Simon Pei Dalit and Shulchan Aruch. So the question comes up, where are we getting our water from in New York City? Now, New York City had a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that we don't need to have filtered water. Everybody else is getting filtered water. Very few cities don't have filtered water. And we're one of those lucky people who have 
filtered water, unfiltered water. Because our water is so gewaltic that the years ago, the, the people who run this city uh, figured out that we don't need any filtering. And other people went to filters, and we never went to filters. We cost a, a zillion dollars, and we never went to filters, and that's what the Metsias is. Now, if we didn't go to filters, so that's a that's plus. But the minus is there are these copepods in there. And there's other things in there, too. If you read the material that comes from the DEP, it discusses the different insects that are in your waters. But it is safe. Don't, they're not dangerous. But ecologically, it's a question mark, which we're going to discuss now. Uh, I'm passing on the question of, about the shock, so he has a little chapter on that. And uh, I'm going to go now and discuss what he has on this particular thing of how the... Um, uh, of, of how the uh, situation is here in New York City. Do we look at it as Yamin Venachalos? Do we look at it as uh, these are the, uh, the seas and the rivers? Or do we look like it's Charitzim uh, Venitzim? Or maybe like Boros? How do we view the water that we have? Now, the water that we have, most of it comes from the uh, reservoirs upstate New York, uh, Basically, in in uh, most of them are in uh, Westchester, I believe, and the Kensico River is the major one that was the whole discussion about, and because the other ones flow into the Kensico. So let me get into the topic here a little bit. Um, when this this thing was discovered that I told you about, that there was a problem with the water, so there was a whole dis- halachic discussion, and many of the prominent prominent postkim felt that the, an individuals must filter their water before they drink and others thought there's no reason to do require that so we're going to discuss that little topic now whether we need a filter on our water or not and whether unfiltered water is acceptable to us or not now new york city has a huge supply system but for our purposes we're going to zero in on the kensico reservoir which is where the copepods are believed to spawn Kensico is a huge reservoir that was completed approximately 100 years ago by damming up a closed, uh, uh, I'm saying damming closed the outlet of a small lake that was and still is fed by many streams. So again, historically, it was streams filling a, uh, a lake, and then we dammed up the lake, and that created the reservoir. The reservoir obviously is much larger than the lake was. It was a rel- you know, relatively small lake, and now it's a huge reservoir. So is the reservoir a boyer, where we're just storing the water? Is it a lake, uh, which has in it, uh, a feed, uh, feeds in by the, from these little uh, inlets, we're going to talk about that, which has small streams that feed into it? So that's the, the question that's going to come up here with the Kensico Reservoir. I'm reading again from the book Halachas of Insects by Rabbi David Cohn. For purpose of our discussion, we'll assume that all drinking water in New York City passes through the Kensico River Reservoir, which is not really 100% true, but that's you know pretty much what the, the deal is. Um, sometimes, some of the uh, sometimes in some places don't have anything to do with Kensico. But we're talking about Kensico, which was the main Shiloh that was being discussed. So with the copepods, now you're never going to find a live copepod. You can't, because they killed it already, because they put in chlorination. 
So even though we don't filter, but we chlorinate the water. So there's no question that they're all killed by the chlorination. And that occurs just after the water leaves the reservoir. So they're alive when they leave the reservoir, and they die in the system. So we have to deal with the reservoir itself. Are Are the insects that are in the reservoir forbidden? We have to deal with the flow down to us, which, by the way, takes a couple of days. And then and it goes through a system, and it's clear, and, and they do stuff to it, but they don't do the actual filtering. So he mentions that, uh, we mentioned before that the, the, you have two conditions that would create a problem for these insects that would make it a forbidden water-based insect. And that is continuous source of inlet water, which we call novea, and moisheikh, that the water is in a state of motion. You need those two conditions to be considered yomim and nachalos. What about water that doesn't qualify as noivea? It's not got an inlet, but it's moisheikh, it moves. That's the status of insects found in such a body of water is a machloikas in the Gemara, and it's also complicated by a machloikas we've shown him. Shulchan Aruch cites both major opinions. Some say that the insects are forbidden, and some say they're permitted. In other words, no inlets, but there is movement. We'll see what this means a little bit later on. The pre and others accept the lenient opinion, but the consensus of the opinion is like the Shach, who is Machmir, and says that even though you don't have both conditions, you only have Moisheich, with movement of the water, then you have to be machmir and say that these these insects are forbidden by the Torah. And that's the accepted opinion today. The status of the copepods in New York City water depends on how you classify the Kensico Reservoir. That's the whole key. Is it considered to be Novea? Is it considered Moisheich? Novea meaning inlet, feeding from a, from a smaller source, and uh, Moisheikh means it's, it's flowing. Now let's see how that works over here. Is the Kentucky Reservoir considered to be Novea? Is it considered that it actually moves? Now I'm going to read some of the Paiskim and their opinions. Rav David Feinstein, now again, I, normally I wouldn't quote Rav David Feinstein because if I didn't hear from him directly or read something, you know, I. but here... I, I know that uh, Rabbi David Cohn went through the topic thoroughly. I trust Rabbi David Cohn's facts. And if somebody knows anything different, you can always communicate with me, and I'd be more than willing to correct it if I find out that you're saying, but you're, you're correct, and he was wrong, and I'll also inform him, etc. And I already have some queries into him as well. So, yes, there, he, he's human. And, but I'm going to quote what he quotes. Rabbi David Feinstein said that since the reservoir is partially fed by at least eight small streams. Remember, it was streams leading into a small lake, and then we dammed up the lake and we made a reservoir, which is huge compared to the size of the little lake that was there in the beginning. But really, the source of the inlets are still coming in. These small, eight small streams are still coming in. He said, so if David Feinstein said, those streams suffice to classify the entire reservoir as having a continuous spring-based feed such that it qualifies as yomim benachalos. So that's what David Feinstein. 
where the, where the halacha is that the insects born in the water have to be forbidden. He supports this position with the Divrei Chaim, who says that a lake which is created by a mixture of spring water and rainwater is classified as novaya, as, it's, as, as, as drawing, as an inlets. So in other words, we don't have to have totally living off the inlets, but we have to have some kind of significant feed from the inlets. Now, on the other hand, Rabbi Belsky's Atzal, he held not that way. He held that because the streams provide just 2% of Kensico's water, because remember, the lake was living off those eight streams, but the lake was a small lake, and the reservoir is huge, right? We dammed it up, and we got all the water, we're holding on to all the water there, and we let it out when we want to let it out, but we're holding it in there. So we, we, got, we got a huge body of water, and the feed is now, in, the, in, the, in the, the final analysis in the reservoir, it's only 2% of the water that's in the reservoir. Uh, so, say since the Rabelsky held that since it's only 2% of the Kensico water, and the overwhelming majority is piped in from other reservoirs, you see, that's the trick. We can ignore the existence of the tiny springs as their contribution is dwarfed by the non-spring water. So that was the machloikas between Rav David Feinstein and Shlita and Rabbi Belsky Zatzal, that's the classic Machlokas existed. I heard from a different person, I heard from Rafael Cohn. Rafael Cohn said the same thing that Rav David is being quoted here as saying, and maybe he heard it from him, I don't remember anymore. Uh, it's so many years since I, since I heard him speak, but I, I, I went to a shear that he gave on this topic. And yes, that was his opinion, or his opinion as well. I assume it's the same opinion. I haven't heard any different. At the same time, you have to bear in mind that the Kensico is continuously gravity-fed by two huge aqueducts carrying water from seven reservoirs, of which all or obviously uh, all or most obviously qualify as yamim since they're spring-fed. So now the the situation you know switches. Are we looking at the reservoir as a stop off for the water that came in from the re- the other reservoirs? Are we looking at the Kensico as a repository of water that was came from from these other reservoirs where they are considered to be spring fed, which means with no, Novaya, and they would be considered to be real. The copepods would be forbidden. Or, and where are they copepods growing? Are they growing in the in the Kensico? Are they growing in the other reservoirs? And that they come in, do they change status? I mean, this is a whole a whole topic here. So we have basically a few reasons to consider the Kensico as a problem for us, either because they're spring-fed themselves from the eight springs that come into streams that come into the original lake. Or because the seven reservoirs that feed into it are themselves spring-fed, and they qualify as yamim v'nachalos, and therefore the Kensico should qualify as that. So we have a number of reasons why the Kensico is considered to be yamim v'nachalos, and it's considered to be the area where insects would be forbidden. Now, some some accept 
I'm sorry, some might accept Rabelsky's argument that the springs which directly feed Kensico are too insignificant to affect Kensico's status. Like we were saying, he said it's only 2%, and the, the springs that go into the Kensico itself are very, very small in relationship to the size of the Kensico Reservoir. But the spring-based water which flows unimpeded and unassisted into Kensico from the other reservoirs, those big seven reservoirs, should lead us to view Kensico as being fed by springs that supply Yomim, the seven upstate reservoirs that feeds two Nachalos, the aqueducts, which empty into the final Kensico. So it seems there's another, there's an aqueduct in the middle. Okay. Thus, even if one disagrees with Ralph Feinstein's point, there is a strong basis for accepting his conclusion that Kensico qualifies as a body of water which is noivim. So he's saying that you know, he's. This is. I'm only explaining what David Cohn is saying. He's saying that uh, that, that David Feinstein held that even though it's only two percent, you actually have springs coming in, and a combination of springs and rain is enough to consider something to be a a yamim. The Nachalos, and it's considered to be f- that the insects inside will be forbidden. That's how Rav David Feinstein was learning. However, we have to admit that uh, there was only two percent. So because of that, um, y- uh, you-, you could say you could say that uh, that's not significant. That was Rabbi Belsky's position. How the But now we're saying that actually. In the, the the sum is that we're getting water that came from Yomim v'Nachalos, and that that's uh, Nachalim. So the, so the uh, they actually sof called sof. It should be whether they're technically whether the Kensico itself is a Yomim v'Nachalim, or it is uh, it's only getting from Yomim v'Nachalim. That's a moot point. Sof Kol Sof, and the bottom line is that the Kensico, according to this, it would be as Rav David Feinstein says. That's what Rav David Kohn is saying over here. Now, we have another question, and that is, remember, we wanted to have two things. One, that the water had inlets, and also that it's moving. Now, I don't know if you know what you know about a reservoir, but a reservoir has two features. One is that it's a reservoir. It, 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 it holds on to the water. But the other feature is that when you pull a, you know, push a button, it it, it opens up and uh, all the water comes out. Whatever you flow as much you want out, then you stop it, and you could, you know, it's like a bathtub. You can let it out whenever you want to. So the question is: Is that called moisheich? Is that called movement? Something that you do to make it move? Is that called movement? Or is movement only something which uh, which happens by itself on its own nature that is constantly going on? So that's a good question by a reservoir. Is the water in Kensico considered to be moishkin? The Kensico reservoir no longer has a natural outlet. It's really stopped up. You could hold on to the water completely and let not a drop out. And water never leaves the reservoir? unless a person opens the gates which feed New York City water pipes, and we let the water out, but it doesn't go out by itself. Rabelsky says that water which can only move, leave, when a human chooses to take it out, is the defining qu- quality of a boyer, 
A boiler is a pit. You know, you have a pit. What is a pit? I keep the water there. When I want to take it out, I take it out. So isn't this a huge pit? Isn't a reservoir a huge pit? That's the position where Rebelski's Atzal held. And a body of water cannot be considered to be moishech, drawing, I mean, moving, unless the water flows or moves naturally, like in a river or a lake. You look at the water in the river, it's moving. The whole shayla, they're making a bracha, because the water you, you see is not the water you drink. <laughs> the water you're going to drink is down the road. You make the shahako, by the time you take the water out, it's new water. There's the famous question. So that, that defines a river or a lake. So when the Torah said the, 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 the yamim, the nachalim, are, uh, the, the insects inside are forbidden, it was referring to, it was referring to a lake or a river. And, and this is more like a bathtub or a boyer in the ground. That's basically what Rabelsky said. Now, there were three arguments that were made against this opinion. Number one, although Kensico has no visible outlet, the truth is that almost every day of the year, except for this number, 1.2 billion gallons of water flow out of the immense pipes that drain water out of the center of that reservoir. 1.2 billion gallons every day comes out of that reservoir. <laughs> Amazing. Any body of water with that amount of flow, which is equal to the amount of water pouring over Niagara Falls each day, Pelodic comparison. The, the, the amount of water that comes out of Niagara Falls is equal to the amount of water that we're getting from the reservoir every day. Cannot possibly consider it as standing still because it's always moving. Although the water flow is controlled, it's not natural, and each individual outlet gate does regularly go through periods of being closed. So there's sometimes when it is actually closed and cannot go out that gate. The net effect is that water is almost continuously flowing out of the reservoir, and therefore it, qua- it qualifies as moishchen. So that's one opinion. And Rabbi Belsky says it has to be a natural flow out. It has to be a natural flow of its own. That'd be like a, like a river or a, or a lake. Or you can say this opinion over here holds, no, it doesn't have to be a natural flow. It has to be a regular flow. And that's what, what uh, they're saying in, in contradistinction to what Bibelsky said. Number two, the Rivid, who at the time, uh, you know, he, one of the commentaries on the, one of the argue, those who argue on, on positions of the Rambam, the Rivid rules that Bibarim qualify as Moishrim. Now, Bibar is a very interesting thing. You don't have this today. I mean, we don't have the same kind of uh, arrangements. But if you have a river that's flowing down, and there's fish in the river, now you can go and take a fishing rod and sit there for an hour and try to catch it on a hook and line. You could uh, take a net and try to catch it. Uh, you know, it's a lot of work to try to catch uh, fish in a river. I mean, in the ocean, maybe there's millions of them, and you just go to where you throw a little uh, a little feed there, and everything comes, and you just pick it up. But we're talking about in the river. It's not so easy to catch fish. So they had a trick. The trick that they did was they had a B-bar. A B-bar was a diversion. You took the water of the of the river and you diverted it towards land. And 
when it hits the land, you had a big pit, and you and the fish and the and the water went over there, and somehow there was another inlet canal from that bee bar back into the river. So what they had is the fish went there and they got trapped in the bee bar, and then you could draw them out. It's a, it's a very small area, and you could turn, close it off, and put it in, you know, stop it, and 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 let it go again, open it, close it, and you have them all trapped in the bee bar. They could have hundreds of fish there. It was rather than a net, you're getting the fish to do all the work. They came to you, and they got trapped in the bee bar, and that's what they used to do. That's uh, was a methodology. So he said that bibarim qualify as moishin. That's considered Moshech, even though obviously you control the inlet and the outlet of that B-bar. Again, the B-bar is on, let's say, the right side of the lake. You have the water diverting into that, uh, into that, uh, into a little inlet. You have it go into this big, huge pool. And then from there, you could take the water and put it back into the lake. And in the middle, you have the fish in the small, I mean, the water and the fish is in the small area, and it's very easy to pick up and get the fish out of there. And you only let the water go back when you got, you know, when you got your fish out, then you let the water go back. So it was, it was not continuously flowing, and yet the water and any insects that grew in the bee bar were considered to be moishech, and they're considered to be um, the same as, uh, they're considered to be the same as uh, in, in a regular lake even though it's not a continual flow. The shallow pits or pools dug alongside the river with two short canals, an inlet canal upstream and an outlet canal downstream, connecting the B-bar to the river. To catch fish, the downstream canal is closed off and the upstream canal is open for a few minutes. And this allows river water to flow into and fill the B-bar. The fish that flow in with the river water can be kept alive in the bee bar until such time that the person wants to easily catch and remove them. Once the fish have all been removed, the downstream canal is opened to let the river water return to the river. Thus, in stating that bee barim are considered moishin, the rived paskins, that although the flow of water out of the bee bar is controlled by humans, and it's definitely not continuous, the water is still considered to be moishich. So that's a key position the Ravid has that uh, you don't need regular Moshech, even something that you control and stop and start again. The fact that your intent is to put it in there, eventually it's going to end up back in the water, in the river again. So that's considered to be Moshech, even though you're controlling it in the middle. So that's the second question they have on Rabbi Belsky's opinion. Lastly, even if one were to ignore the flow of water through New York City water pipes, it's possible that Moishchim is satisfied by the mere ebb and flow of water within the massive reservoir. In other words, it's his movement it's like a lake. In this, in this context, it's worth noting that the Torah uses the word yom, like a, an ocean, to describe the yom hamelech, even though as the lowest place on earth, there's no natural outlet from the Yama Melech. This indicates that any body of water that is large enough to have waves and movement of water, just by virtue of its size, qualifies as Moshchim 
even if there's no outflow of the water. So that would be a third reason that the reservoir, the Kensico Reservoir, should be considered to be yomim v'nachalim and be forbidden, the bugs, the insects inside should be forbidden to us, and that's the copepods that we're talking about. Thus, Rabelsky answers the second question by suggesting that Kensico Reservoir is a boyer. It's actually looked at as a big hole in the ground, while others offer proofs from logic and arrived that it's treated as moishchim. So there was a machloikas on this particular point, and uh, in the end, he's summing up that there are three opinions. Based on the above, we can understand the three opinions as to the status of the Kensico Reservoir. Number one, Rav David Feinstein Schlita is of the opinion that it has the status of Yamin Venachalim because it has both Noveya, it's move, it, it has inlets, and Moishchin, and it's moving. And therefore, Kobopods, which spawn there, are forbidden. Rabelsky Zatzal, Father Mechaim Mechaim, says that it has the status of a huge boyer because it's, it's neither Noveya, it doesn't have any real inlets. He challenges that because he said they're very insignificant. And, uh, or Moishchin, no Moishchin, they don't, there's no flow out because the reservoir could be stopped up and nothing comes out. It's totally under human control. And therefore, copepods which spawn there are permitted. Others suggest a compromise position. Kensico is not considered Noveya. It's not considered that the, in, the inlets are real inlets. Since, in their opinion, it's not spring-fed because they're two, two little uh, sources of water, only the 2%. But it's considered to be moishchin. It's considered moishchin. And therefore has a status of charitzin unitzin. And charitzin unitzin, I know you forgot that already. Charitzin reason I, I mentioned it to you in the beginning. And that's the an in-between status. And, and that's uh, we, we are, there's the machlokas rishonim. And in the Machlokas in the Gemara. So, Charitzin Eitzin is a, a topic that's open to discussion. According to opinion number one, which was David Feinstein, the copepods found in New York City's water supply are forbidden, even if they never left the water. And one is required to filter the water before drinking it. We previously noted that the consensus of Postkim is to accept the ruling of the Shach that insects found in Charitzin and Neitzin are forbidden. So therefore, um, two reasons to be machmir on the copepods in New York City water. If so, opinion three would also rule that one must filter New York City water, but see the, no- uh, okay, so, but see the note, footnote for a possible reason why you don't have to require that. All right, in, in, in the bottom line is that Rabelsky has a different opinion than the others that we expressed, those who follow opinion two, which is Rabbi Belsky, or adopt a leaning approach within opinion three, which is not to follow the shach, must still consider whether the insects remain permitted when they leave the reservoir. So that's an interesting copy. It's a different uh, chapter. I don't know if we're going to be doing it today or not. I want to just check. Uh, we have another 15 minutes according to this, according to this clock. Now, I'd like to... to just sum up what is happening and what's happened recently and what's going on. There are some people today who claim that their water is not affected. It's New York City water, doesn't apply everywhere. It has to do with the flow of the water on their block. They have apartment houses. They don't have apartment houses. They have this kind of thing, that kind of thing. 
they tried a little experiment themselves, didn't find it, and they decided there's no problem with it. Uh, there's, there are parts of New York City where people did uh, some kind of research, I don't know what, and came away that they said, oh, we don't have that. It's, it was all misunderstanding. We don't have that problem in our borough, in our area. I've spoken to Rabbi Lach, who is the maven in this whole thing. Rabbi Lach was at the OU at that time in 2004. He wrote the paper for the, for the OU and discussed this whole, and, and researched this whole thing and got very, very much involved in it. He's the one who came up with the easy filter. He also has a website, and he, and he tells people which filters are acceptable to use because it's a whole different topic of what size filter you need or how tight the mesh has to be. If you don't have it very tight, it could be worse than not using it at all. So the filter is, which filter you're using is extremely important. Um, and if you use one that's too tight, um, you might be trapping a lot of stuff and have to replace the uh, filter itself uh, very often, which makes it difficult too. So you got to get the right balance. And this is where Rabbi Yaakov Lach is, uh, is the biggest maven in this business. And, and uh, we, 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 he's the go-to person. So I spoke with him not uh, recently, or been a few months ago, perhaps, and I asked him what is the situation, and he said that, that there is no change. All five boroughs, same problem. I can't talk for the people who live in those communities who did whatever research they did. I don't know, maybe there's something that he doesn't know, but he's made himself available to check the water. He's for anybody. And he's uh, he's been doing his work, l'shem uh, shemayim all this time, and uh, this is not his main <laughs> activity making easy filters. So, it, really, you uh, you know, it, 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 if you're hearing from other people, you have to check and see how uh, how authoritative these claims are from different parts. Now, what is the position of the cashless agencies? The position of the cashless agencies, as far as I know, is to be machmir in this. Now, it's true that some will take a hashkocha even if the company won't, uh, you know, adhere to this. And uh, I'm not sure how much they're all checking the filters. I don't know. But in principle, the cashless agencies require this of everybody, whether it's a restaurant in Brooklyn or it's a, a manufacturer, a bottling plant uh, that's doing using a lot of water, <laughs> a lot of that, uh, billions of, uh, of water, billions of gallons of water. And and yes, they are on top of the situation. Some are more on top of it, and some are less on top of it. But yes, the cash, the problem of the copepods goes on. It may have been discovered in two thousand and four, but it's uh, it hasn't stopped. And even though you may not have heard of it, or it's not popular to discuss it that much, the cashless agencies continue to be monitoring it and to be to, to taking care of it on the, well, those who have their hashkochas. And the, the other people who are uh, on them have to make sure that they're doing their job and, and, yes, ask them once in a while and make sure that everything's done properly. Yes. Now, can I, can I t- tell... Now, I have water in my house. Rabbi Wickler, I have water in my house. I drew some water out. I'm looking in the thing. I'm looking in the cup. I don't see a thing. So, therefore, I could drink it, right? Well, again, have you ever seen a Copa Pod? Do you know what one looks like? 
you really don't want to know what one looks like because they look like a very strange creature. <laughs> I'm telling you. I don't think it's scary, but it's, it's strange. I have a giant copepod that's about a foot long. It's not a real one. It's a stuffed one. It's a, it's a kid's thing. And they made a, a cut side of the copepod. I have it in, in my office. If you want to see a copepod, I can show you a real size copepod. But it, it, the, uh, the copepods can be seen by anybody if you know how to look for it, if you've seen them in your life, and if you look very carefully, very carefully, because the color does is very uh, as a dullish gray white color. It's not so much that's going to show up on anything. So yes, you can see it if you look in a clear glass. If you're going to look in a in a cup, <laughs> you only can see the top. Uh, you can't see the sides. Forget about it. If you train and you and you'll sit, let it sit there, you'll be able to see it. One of the things that uh, Rabbi David Goldstein did when we went down to Positive, the few times we went down to Positive, I used to send groups over there, and he, one of the things he showed us was a little container that had copepods in it. It had maybe a couple hundred copepods. And he would shake it up, and it would look like snow, and, it would, and they would come down, and you would see all of them. I mean, you'd see hundreds of them. And that, those are the real copepods. It's not something that a person can't see. It's something you're not used to looking for, and therefore you haven't trained yourself to, to spot it. And that's really the, all it is. But definitely, the copepods are there, and if you want to look for them, you'll find them. If somebody trains you, you'll find them. And if not, you won't. But uh, it, is an, it is a serious issue. Gedoli Hador, Paskin on it. If you, you know, if somebody's told you, differently than, than I've said here. If you have any ha'oros, any comments on it, I'm glad to listen to any of them. You can contact me, kashrus at aol.com, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at aol.com, or you can call 718-336-8544 and leave your, your point, uh, whatever it is about the the water. I can't call everybody back. I get a volume of calls that's unbelievable these days. So if, if it's a, just to let me know something, Realize I do listen to the messages. We do know it if you said it, but we can't always recall you back and tell you and talk about it further. Uh, if it's something that you feel that the, the world should know about and I think there's a misunderstanding in some sort, I'm more than willing to express that opinion. I was reading today that my writing, it was from the Halachas of Insects. In Hebrew, it's Hilchas Kashrus Imri David. It's all written in English. And by Rabbi David Cohn from the CRC, the Chicago Rabbinical Council, and uh, he's got a very interesting style, and it, it, he he makes the uh, the topics come alive. They're uh, it's it's certainly not boring. Uh, you know, you have a a chance. There was a I don't know if you remember back a few years ago we had on the show uh, Timis, Thomas Timothy Timothy Litton, who wrote a book on. Kashrus agencies was very interesting. Later on, another book came out by a gentleman. I'm not going to tell you his name. Not going to mention the book because he wasn't. Uh, he's not a Shomer Torah mitzvah, and a lot of his things are, uh, you know, affected by that. Uh, his book starts out discussing a non-kosher meal that he was at. So he's not uh, of our type. But uh, but the book is one of the most interesting books you could read. He's got the inside story on some 
amazing facts of Kashrus and then you know the history of Kashrus. It's it, both those books are extraordinarily interesting. This reads like a, a Sherlock Holmes or Who Done It, you know, and but it's it, and halacha and uh, Rabbi Cohn is a great great writer, very accurate, very uh, it's good material. I, I want he has a piece here on choosing a filter, and I mentioned it briefly. Uh, and the problem is that you if you if an insect is not forbidden when it's in the water, it sometimes comes forbidden when it comes out of the water and goes back in again. So if your filter leaks, then you get you you're creating more problem because you're taking the, the insect away from the water and then you're putting it back in again. So you have to have a filter that's very that works well. That's why you have to change them often enough, and you have to make sure that it's strong enough that it won't leak any of the insects. All of that is explained in this book. If you want to get it, you can get it directly from the author, but you can go to the website. He has a website called kashrushalacha.com. And if you want to reach him, he's at the Chicago Rabbinical Council, and I'll give you his email address as well, dcohen at crcweb.org. dcohen at crcweb.org. I don't remember the exact price. I think it's $22. But uh, he has another safer out and a third one coming out in the near future. But this is uh, an extraordinary trip into the world of insects. So if you've Never, uh, you know, if you have the time to read these things, they're they're very interesting, short, very short topics, two, three pages for a topic, and you're getting a lot of background information that you probably would never be able to put together yourself. All about insects. It's not the straight halacha, it's the actual process of the foods, the way they're made, and the harvest. He discusses chapter 34's gourmet bags, he discusses, uh, you know, a woman as a mashkiach. There's a whole, uh, whole discussion here of a, a woman being a mashkiach. Very interesting. Very, very uh, in, involved in each little prat. If you like a good book, you want to give something to some vechanaka. It's a good safer to give because uh, anybody who has an interest in the halachas, anybody who is interested in the insect with the insect area, would want would would very much like to have this book. So I'm going to uh, wish everybody a a Freilich and Hanukkah. Uh, we'll be with you. We'll be next week. We're here. Yeah, we'll be here next week. That's a, that's up to, we're not sure. Okay, we're not sure if we're going to be here. So next uh, next week on Hanukkah. So if you're not, then I wish you a Freilich and Hanukkah for the whole time. If not, I'll be able to discuss with you some other topic during Hanukkah. In in any effect, uh, it's a, Hanukkah is a wonderful time to reflect on uh, all the brachas that we've had during the course of the year. If, if people reflect uh, every night on one bracha that we have, the way the, the way the Jews looked at Hanukkah, that we're so excited we found a little pach shemen. We, we're so excited we had this nace occur with the pach shemen. You know, Baruch Hashem, uh, it, it, it came about because people wanted to do mitzvahs. They could have easily said when they came to the base of Migdash, Oh, there's nothing here, so we're going to have to wait. But they kept looking and looking and looking until they finally found the Pach Shemin. And Hashem does that. He gives you Siyat Rishmaya, 
and he makes nisim in the flows, and the, most of us don't even realize that he did it. Baruch Hashem, the Jews of old, realized that little Pach Shemin, that wasn't an accident. That was HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And that's and and that's what makes Hanukkah to recognize our Kaddish Baruch Hu in our lives. So that's a good time to reflect on all the brachas that we've had this past year. And uh, eight days we should be able to come away with a big simcha uh, for uh, all the things that Hashem has given us the course of the year. If you want to reach me anytime, uh, our telephone number again seven one eight. 336-8544 or you can reach us at Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com and until next week or maybe two weeks, this is your host Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine for Kashrus on the Air.